Hey guys, so I know by now we've all heard that the PCR test is a test that is questionable in regarding to determining if somebody is sick with the CV. And I've heard in passing, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard in passing, that the inventor of the PCR test also felt that way himself. Now, I had never done any serious investigation into that claim. I knew a little bit about the man who invented the PCR test, but I decided to go and look exactly at what did he say? What is it that he doesn't like about his test that he got a Nobel Prize for inventing? What about it does he not like it being used to determine illness? So the first thing I did was Google Carrie Mullis to get a cursory feeling of who the man was, get some basic information. And the first thing I found out is, Carrie Mullis is no longer with us. He's passed. And so that left me with a question. Well, the way I had heard the story is that it, the inventor of the PCR test didn't agree with the way it was being used for the CV. Well, that couldn't have been possible because he died before that. And we're going to get into that later. But it couldn't have been possible he was talking about the CV, so what was he talking about? And I dug a little bit further. This got me sent down such a deep, dark rabbit hole that is so confusing that I've still not been able to put everything into a linear thought process that I can present to you. And so at the end of the day, I've decided that I'm just going to start playing the interviews of Mullis that I watched, and we're going to go through them together, and I'm going to try to piece together the story that I see. It's this mosaic of information that connects Carrie Mullis and his contrarian belief about HIV AIDS to what's going on now in our current situation. And I found this man absolutely intriguing. This surfing biochemist who was a Nobel Prize winner and took a contrarian point of view on basically all the scientific dogma of the time. He was a scientific outlaw that you only see once in a generation. He refers to at one point, um, the scientists turned in their white robes and now they wear white lab coats. And I think that that is a pretty good summation of what he saw going on in the scientific community during his time. But he always spoke his truth and he always had good facts to back it up. And so, of course, the establishment, the medical establishment hated him. Specifically, funny enough, Anthony Fauci hated him, and he hated Anthony Fauci. But imagine the two of them having the same argument about the PCR test over HIV-AIDS as HIV-AIDS is turning into what they what it eventually turned into in the 80s. And he did come up with an alternative theory about HIV, and he wasn't the only scientist, but he was punished for it. And he spoke about that a lot in his interviews about the difficulty he had in getting grants after he had spoke his truth about um, the disease known as HIV. The work that he was doing towards the end was never amplified in the medical community. It was And there was definitely things that he was doing that warranted that. Instead, his... Uh, Scientific achievements from that point on were kind of just swept under the rug. And when I say scientific achievements, I'm talking about a novel way that he was able to completely eliminate anthrax. This is in 2009.
this method that he d- describes that he used to do that sounds like the same methods that they're using in the new medicines for the CV, both the vaccine and the Regeneron. But worst of all, he was labeled a pseudoscientist. And you can go to Wikipedia right now, and it says that he developed a reputation for being known as a pseudoscientist. They talk about how he thought astrology was something scientific, and they basically are besmirching his name on Wikipedia. And why would that be? This is the first first signs that were happening in the medical community where people were not willing to talk about the the possibility of the scientific dogma of the day being incorrect and instead of having vigorous debate they shut them down this was starting to look like an analog 80s version of the digital stuff that happened to America's frontline doctors and the two doctors in California who did their viral video. I believe his name is Dr. Erickson, Dr. Mir, uh, or Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. All of these doctors had contrary opinions in the medical community around this CV and they were all silenced and shut down and God knows if they'll ever get grant money or work in the scientific community again, but something tells me that that would be difficult for them. But my true hope is that I'll be able to do this presentation and you'll be able to come to some of the same questions that I came to by following my lead. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this in a single episode. It's going to be multiple episodes, and it's going to include all these interviews with Carrie Mullis, and then sometimes we're going to take sidetracks, and we're going to look at current information, and we're going to listen to other scientists, but not quite as often as we're going to listen to Carrie Mullis's words himself. I believe not enough people have heard him speak, and I want him to have his moments. Uh, he's done some TED Talks, but for the most part, you know, I, I, I see him in a hundred years. He's, the, he's the, the Tesla of biochemistry. You know, so, so much of biochemistry is built on the foundation of the PCR test, and yet the PCR test was invented by a scientist who was blackballed and deprived of research and called a pseudoscientist. And in all, and through all that, he continued his work, and he developed a method where he could have a person's own immune system target uh, specific markers on viruses and bacteria that you didn't want in the body, i.e. having the um, immune system work against viruses and bacteria on its own. Now, I don't know if you know much about the drugs that are coming out that are new from both Regeneron, which is a treatment, and the the jabs, they all are doing this exact process. And it's quite bizarre. But to set the tone of this entire series, I'm going to start with a recent news report about regarding the CV. And then I'm going to play a clip from a Carrie Mullis interview from a long time ago. And he's asking similar questions about similar things. And I'm not going to be able to get much deeper into it than that on this platform. And for the record, I have to say that the medical views that this man uh, expresses are contrary to the mainstream scientific theories on HIV AIDS and on climate change and on everything else he talks about. So I've said it. There you go, YouTube. All right. So 
let's get into it. All right, so first thing is this clip that was from Fox News a little while ago and pretty much everybody missed. Two Minnesota lawmakers are calling for an audit of coronavirus deaths in the state. They raised the alarm after reviewing data from nearly 3,000 death certificates, and they found that 800 of those counted as a COVID death actually didn't have COVID as an underlying cause of death. From the Minnesota Department of Health's own files, public records, Rachel, of uh, suicide, a drowning, an auto accident where the passenger was ejected from the vehicle. We found dementia. Those are the sad cases, really sad cases when uh, they're dying of dementia, but also being classified as a COVID death and strokes. Um, I also uh, just was so shocked at what I found that I just could not keep silent. If, if you go back to April last year, this, this past year, you'll see that the Department of Health and the CDC were both putting out advice and instructions to go ahead and use. So when I was naming doctors who had been blackballed because of their contrarian opinion to the scientific dogma around the CV, I did not say Dr. Scott Jensen, and I really should have, so for the record. COVID-19 in a more casual manner than we've used before. It was as if the the format that we've used for the last 17 years to identify the initiating event and the sequence of causation was changed if it involved COVID-19. But I think it begs the question that we have to follow the money. And when you see that the right. 2.2 trillion dollars came in, they were providing, if you could hit a threshold of 161 admissions to your hospital with COVID-19 diagnosis between January and June, you receive $77,000 of additional money for each one of those admissions. So in Florida, there was a health report that said a COVID-19 uh, death toll was inflated by 10%. In Washington, it's been reported that the death toll could be overinflated by 13%. And in Colorado, it has been uh, reported that at least two cases of gunshot victims were being classified as COVID-19 deaths. And that is why we are calling for a full audit. And President Trump, if you are watching Fox and Friends this morning, I am asking you to request a full audit of every single state in the nation, because Minnesota is not an anomaly. The citizens of our... This information is almost disguised as it goes across the airways. Because she's calling for a full audit, and most people just walk by the TV and turn it off in their brain because they're like, oh, that election nonsense. But she's not talking about that. She's saying we need to audit the CV deaths, which people have been saying for a long time, but now there's cause for it. Our country are being led in fear, and that fear is leading them to make irrational decisions based on the governors with their shutdowns, uh, with us not being able to exercise our life, our liberty, our pursuit of happiness. And so we need this audit. We need the truth. And the public deserves the truth. All right, Dr. Kerry Mose. All kinds of diseases started coming into the AIDS family faster than anyone should have been comfortable with, really. To go from two or three to go to, to 30 in a few years was like somebody should have said, hey, there's something wrong here and it's got to be financial. Things don't happen that fast in science. <laughs> You don't suddenly notice that one new organism is causing every problem. Everybody was, was looking at the blood of an AIDS patient and finding it crawling with some new organism and said, hey, this is this virus that we call HIV now. And it was a bizarre thing that happened. It really was. It didn't really have any precedence in terms of 
of medicine before that, unless perhaps you could think of the possession by the devil stuff, right? You see, once you're possessed by the devil, anything that happens to you or anything you do is is got to do with that, right? So it makes it easier for you to get tuberculosis, and it makes it easier for you to get uterine cancer. It makes it easier for you to get candida albicans. And so all those things can now be called AIDS. Now, why would anybody do that? And why would any reasonable doctor start lumping together various symptoms into one pile and think all this is caused by HIV? There are no really good experiments that would lead anybody who was, who was at least maintaining a healthy skepticism to believe that HIV was responsible for this series of, this not series, but kind of a loose confederation of diseases that people are now willing to call AIDS, right? It's a, it's a confederation of maybe 30 different diseases, all of which have existed in one form or other prior to the condition that we call AIDS ever being pointed out, and all of which have had some other explanation at one time or other. You know, to say that all 30 of those are somehow caused, in at least some cases, called AIDS cases, by a virus called HIV, I think, I'd, I haven't seen any evidence for that. I haven't even seen anybody trying to bring evidence forth for that. And I, only then I started looking into it. I looked up a bunch of papers in science that, that Bob Gallo, I, I knew about him and had written. I figured, well, Gallo must have been the one to figure it out because he's the name I've heard associated with it. I looked at his papers and I didn't find anything in there that actually showed me that there was a fact now in science called HIV is the cause of AIDS or even the probable cause of AIDS which is all I would have expected, the probable cause of AIDS. Highly probable, because they were attacking the whole problem by then as though it were certainly the cause. So I'd expect it to be highly probable, but I couldn't find anything that said it was remotely probable even. It was possible, but it wasn't probable. And so therefore, it wasn't even close to what you'd call a fact. I mean, I understand there are a lot of people, if you ask them about HIV causing AIDS as being a fact, they'll say, of course, it's indisputable. And the very fact that they would say it's indisputable might lead you to question their ability to understand the scientific method. People that think any scientific fact is indisputable don't understand about scientific facts. Most people got involved in it, really looked at it and said, I don't think this is really true, but I won't get into it anyhow. It wasn't like that. It was like they were never questioning it because it was the easy way to go. You follow, I mean, if somebody's paying you $150,000 a year for working on something, you don't have to be questioning whether that's useful every day because it's useful to you. I mean, if you're trying to work your way up in IBM, you don't immediately go to the, to the chairman of the company and say, does this company actually do what it says it does? I mean, are we really for real? I mean, I mean, you don't do that, right? So the fact that everybody that works for IBM believes in IBM as a company does not say that IBM really does what it says it does. It just says, well, of course, everybody that works for IBM kind of toes the line, right? So everybody in the field of AIDS works for AIDS in a way. I mean, you can think of it as a big corporation that's completely funded by the federal government. It's a big company. It's a big organization which has a pecking order 
Not quite as distinct as some companies, but not as indistinct as you might think. It is not a bunch, it's not 30,000 independent scientists working in their own labs with their own ideas. See, so to say that they all go for it, he says, well, they all belong to the club, don't they? They're all being paid out of the same coffer, and they're not going to be paid if they don't go for it. So you can't, you, the only way to resolve this for yourself is to say, I guess I'm going to have to learn a little about it. I hope that just the playing of that interview, that series of interviews, is enough for you to understand the general direction that I'm going with this. Carrie Mullis, had he been alive today, the person who invented the PCR test, his voice right now would have been a voice in the darkness. And it would have been so loud, almost to the point where they wouldn't have been able to run this with him alive. So isn't it convenient that Carrie Mullis passed in August of 2019 from pneumonia? I'm going to show you the first interview that I actually watched of Carrie Mullis. And I had to splice this one together as well. Something that I've noticed about him and some other various topics as well, that when it's something that the system doesn't want out, they chop it up on the internet. You can find, like if you Google it, you find the interview and it's like a one and a half minute clip of what the system wants out. You have to go through hours and hours of video files on DuckDuckGo or Google and you have to piece together these interviews back together again so that you can find out what was the totality of what he was saying. It's, it's, it's crazy. But I want you to listen to the first interview that I heard of Kerry Mullis, and I think you'll understand why I see him as such a special kind of genius. So this is the youngest we'll cover, Dr. Kerry Mullis, the young firebrand version of the man. This is 10 years after AIDS had first become a thing. And it also is going to mention a molecular biologist named Peter Duisberg. And I guess I'm, I'm going to not cut that out because Duisberg was blackballed just as much as Kerry Mullis was, if not worse. But I do want the focus of this to remain on Dr. Kerry Mullis, but it's, it's important to just let this documentary clip ride. Then at the end, I'm going to show you what they cut out of this, the clip that's very hard to find. And it's impossible to find the, the interview in its entirety, but I think I've put together most of what I could is available. You'll hear him mention Fauci in this interview, but he'll talk about Fauci in a much different way in the two-minute clip following this. All right, let's go. The people that are AIDS researchers now are getting neurotic if you ask them any questions. There was a time when I first started asking questions, that all I wanted was... Where are the papers? Just tell me the papers that you read that convinced you that HIV was the cause of AIDS because I need to reference those papers in some of the, I was working on a test for HIV with PCR and I needed to write a little report to the NIH to say here's the progress we've made and the first line of it was HIV is the probable cause of AIDS and I thought that was true. This is before I got involved and I said what's the reference for that quote and I looked for it for about two or three years and I never could find it. And by the end of two years, I'd ask everybody at every meeting that I'd gone to that talked about AIDS. I'd ask, you know, every, I'd look through every computer database. There is no reference. There is nobody who should get credit for that statement. Now, that's a pretty weird situation in science where 
getting credit for a discovery is the most important thing in your life as a scientist. It's silly to hear people saying, you don't believe that HIV causes AIDS? You don't believe that? I mean, it's just a word, but it's a very, very important distinction, I think, that, that, that you know, that's why it, it, and it, it's become a very emotional kind of thing, because people actually, they get personally committed to what really is a body of evidence that can be analyzed, you know, by lots of people, and, and at this point, there's so much of it out there, nobody can really analyze it, all of it, but nobody can write a review of it that says HIV causes AIDS because of this. You know, if a postdoc were to write a review of their literature that showed without much doubt that HIV was the cause of AIDS, that guy would be famous. Now there's a hundred thousand guys out there who had the opportunity. It's Ten years has passed. We've been waiting for this star postdoctoral fella to distinguish himself forever and get a lifelong grant from Tony Fauci, but he hasn't shown up. No one has bothered to write a definitive review. Any journal would take it. That right there proves that HIV does not cause AIDS. Just because Bob Gallo gets up, takes his sunglasses off and says, gentlemen, you discovered the cause of AIDS. That's all we have. New York Times article, CDC report, that's all we have. That's not enough. That's not enough to, to you know, that is not sufficient to, to like publish even a, a meager little scientific paper somewhere. That isn't enough for scientists to believe some inconsequential fact about some star 50 light years away. You know, that's certainly not enough to treat at the cost of million, billions of dollars a year and at the cost of a lot of lives and anguish and just destroyed, you know, lives have just been totally ruined by this thing on the basis of some flimsy little statement made by a guy who's known to be a crook in lots of other ways. He lied about a whole lot of other stuff. Why we trust him there? He was a witness in a courtroom. We wouldn't trust his testimony. We've caught him in too many lies. So you don't trust him anymore. Scientists are supposed to have some evidence that leads them tentatively to some conclusion or to some action. They're supposed to be able to show that to other scientists, any interested person, in fact, who's willing to understand what it is that was used as evidence, should be able to say, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense, using rules of inference that we've used for, since Aristotle. What they look for is surrogate markers. Now, have you heard that term battered about? Surrogate markers means, well, it doesn't seem to do anything for the disease, but it does every now and then do something for the level of CD4 cell that we measure, or it does something for this or that. Not that anybody really knows whether you want more or less CD4 cells at any particular time in your life. A lot of diseases cause CD4 to go up. A lot of diseases cause it to go down. Nobody's even sure if a CD4 cell is always a CD4 cell. Just it's a marker on the cell at the time that they do this little counting procedure, which is to stick a fluorescent tag on there and say the ones that light up have CD4 on the outside. And we don't really know what those cells do. The immune system is incredibly complicated. And immune the immunologist brains are not nearly complicated enough to deal with it. We have these little, you know, there are theories all over the place, but no real competent immune, immunologist would tell you that CD4 levels was a sufficient a surrogate market for anything until we know more about it. But that's what they're using. That's what the FDA is saying, yeah. You don't have to show that it helps them. These protease inhibitors, same thing. You don't have to show that it helps the patient. You don't have to show a single life saved. All you have to do is show some little clinical indicator has changed in a way that somebody is hoping is going to make you better. 
the chances of you getting a human virus today are a hell of a lot higher than they were, say, 10,000 years ago. And it goes up in a, in a funny way. Let's just say that there are an infinite number of retroviruses in the, the world because they're changing so fast you couldn't really count them. And as more and more people are in your life, you get more and more chances of getting retroviruses. Now, they all might be harmless. The chances are good that they are because they're just barely alive. But if you hang out with a thousand people a year in a way that would maybe get allow you to get some or most of their retroviruses, and they hang out with a thousand people a year, and they hang out with a thousand people a year, you're hanging out with a fourth of the human race. You're getting all the retroviruses from all over the planet. Now, it might be that none of those things by themselves is going to hurt you, but we know that some of them do grow in your immune cells, right? And they come in, they come in at very low multiplicity. You don't make an immune response every time you get a retrovirus inside of you somewhere. But if you have a cell in your immune system that has a retrovirus in it, and you promote that clonality because it's going to be a part of an immune response, that cell, then the retrovirus will definitely escape, it will flower in a sense, and it will then have to be dealt with by the immune system because there'll be enough of it showing in the blood that the immune system will go for it. Well, now, if you've got enough harmless but different retroviruses in your immune cells such that every time you may mount a new immune response, which means you probably take about 500 different immune cells and make a million copies out of each one of them, if you've got enough retroviruses in your immune system such that one of those 500 is going to have a retrovirus in it that you've never made an immune response to before, you're going to have to make an immune response to it this time because it will. if you make a million copies of the cell, it's sure the retrovirus is certain to, to, to flower, to like make infectious bodies, right? Then you have to make another immune response, right? It's called a chain reaction. Here we have a bunch of people that are definitely sick for some reason. It's likely that their behavior was so so radically different than the behavior that had gone. It was an experimental kind of behavior in a way. It's not, un it's not unlikely that they would have some kind of problems, some health problems. People stop sleeping and eating. People start using all kinds of, of, of substances instead of food. And, and, and they're, they're associating with the, the world's getting more and more densely populated and we're spreading more and more diseases around. It's not totally shocking that those people should come down with some, some diseases that will kill them. So we don't need to postulate that there was an infection going on, since nobody actually did show that there was. Here comes Gallo and Mountainier and, and the NIH saying, that's right, it's something else. It's something you didn't have. You're not responsible for it. You're just the beginning of it. We're all going to get it. And they liked that so much, because they said, we can go right ahead and do what we're doing. We just have to do a few little things differently, and then we'll, we'll be okay. They, they cling to that, you know, and, and they think if you suggest that it's their activity, that the way they live their life, that you're a homophobe or something, you're some kind of an idiot, there's something wrong with you. There's some of them that aren't that stupid, but, you know, there's a lot of them that are religiously associated with the notion. They believe in the notion that it is an infectious thing that will eventually sweep across the planet and kill everybody. PCR came along right about the same time that HIV did, and I was, it was in, at CETUS that people started looking with PCR for HIV. That was the only way to see it, except for culture, which was a long, protracted procedure, which a lot of times didn't turn up the, the right, the, the results the there weren't very good either. The culture itself can be contaminated. Oh, the culture, the whole method 
that, that whole that cell biology is a bunch of magic half the time. And those a culture, you know, that the people that say they can do quantitative estimations of HIV from cultures are just they're fooling themselves. The number of cases reported went up epidemically, you know, exponentially, because the number of tests that was done went up exponentially. How many doctors knew about HIV in 1983? Two. How many knew about it in 1985? Say 500. How many, knew, how many knew about it in 1986? 40,000. So that's where the curve came from. How much money did we make off of HIV this year? And they could have plotted that, and it would have looked the same. You know, and they could have said it's an epidemic because we're making more and more money off of it every year. If it's just caused by needles, or it's just caused by homosexual activities, you're not going to really get a whole, a long, sustained public outcry against it, and nobody's going to want to spend $6 billion a year. They're going to say, well, we really didn't like those people anyhow. Great. I can't think of a better solution to the homosexual problem than a disease that'll kill them all. I mean, there would be congressmen that would talk about that quietly, not on television. So the CDC had to say, we can't say that. We've got to say it's going to be, it's got to be heterosexually transmitted. There's no proof that it's transmitted at all at that point. So why not just say, well, it's heterosexually transmitted too? Because that made it a plague, and the CDC needed one. The CDC hadn't had a good plague since polio. Their funding was probably going to be cut back if they didn't come up with one. The guy that was the head of the CDC, in fact, wrote memos that have been obtained, you know, that where he describes this as hot stuff. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. The scientists are, like you say, they are, they are considered the final arbiters of what's good for the planet or what's bad for the planet. And, and they haven't got the slightest idea. Instead of wearing white robes, they wear white lab coats, you know. Instead of like bringing you the word of God, they bring you the word of the, the EPA or whatever. And, and, and they don't have to understand what it is that they are making you do, in fact. And people, you know, just, I think they fall naturally into it because there, there is a need in, in humanity for something like a religion, something that makes you feel a part of some larger kind of group, something that you think, in spite of your wormy little life, makes you a part of something good, something big. When beliefs get tangled up with facts, matters of fact, become matters of, of religious kind of significance, where if somebody gets mad at you for asking him a question in a scientific meeting, or says, I'm not, we're never, never going to have Kerry Mullis at the European Union of whatever kind of scientists, they put it in nature, because he came in there and had the audacity to tell people that it might not be that bad to have sex, that AIDS might not be something you get from sex. That I don't see any evidence for it, is all I said. I don't see any evidence for it. What? You can't tell young people that. Today, there are many scientists and physicians working within the conventional institutions who have similar viewpoints to those of the dissidents. Well, why don't they come out? Why don't they speak their minds? Is it possible that they take a look at what has happened when you do question the HIV equals AIDS equals death hypothesis? They've been suppressed. Dr. Peter Duisberg, noted scientist, was the main person in the line of fire. Peter is a very scholarly person in addition to being brilliant too. He's very careful. He doesn't say anything that he can't support. And also the most, one of the most brilliant people in, surely the most brilliant virologists. 
Peter Duisberg at the University of California Berkeley campus is seen as, a, as someone who is now dangerous. Uh, his funding has been cut off. Uh, graduate students are in, encouraged not to take his courses, and I think his administrative duties have included uh, uh, being in charge of the department picnic. My funding, for example, from the National Institute of Health will not be renewed as of this year, and I may be out of business then. Also, my colleagues uh, have essentially excommunicated me. I'm not invited to meetings, or hardly ever to meetings anymore, not, to, not, not ever to one on eights. I'm not uh, allowed to publish in the same journals anymore as I used to. Even as a member of the National Academy, I cannot publish in the National Academy my views that drugs may be the cause of AIDS. And I have plenty of evidence to support it, to document my claim, which might be very relevant to the health of millions of Americans and people on this planet. Yet, I'm not. I'm censored because I'm essentially considered to be an outcast or an odd man or somebody who has controversial views. He was a really well thought of guy too because of his ideas, the whole field. I mean, in, in cancer, he's the guy that led him into the whole oncogene thing, you know? Big research bonanza. Anybody who could order a little kit from some company and, and hire a couple of technicians could be a cancer researcher because of, of things that Peter opened up. And then Peter said, no, I don't think that's actually the cause of cancer. And that made those guys a little bit angry. And then he comes along and does the same thing for AIDS. He says, you know, I think we're on the wrong track here. You know, it's just like in political scandals. Follow the money trail. Figure out who's getting paid for this. Who's getting the money for those Western blocks? There's your person who's going to always come down on the side of, yeah, you got a confirmatory Western blonde, they call it. They don't even do them in England anymore. No, but not since 1992. It's, it's, it's totally, it's, and, and an, ask a doctor how it works. The doctor who prescribes says, got to have a Western blot to confirm this Eliza positive thing. How does that work, doctor? Uh, sir, how, how, what, are, what are they now measuring about me that's different from what they measured with the Eliza test? He wouldn't know. He's not got any idea. I'll bet you there's scarcely... Uh, 50 physicians in this country that know what a Western blot really is. They know when to order it, and they know they get a kickback on it, probably. AZT is an antiretroviral drug that became the first drug approved for the treatment of AIDS and HIV infection in 1987. It was originally intended to treat cancer, but it failed to show efficacy and had unacceptably high side effect profiles. However, the unavailability at that time for alternatives to treat AIDS affected the risk-benefit ratio greatly. The antiviral drugs are chemotherapies. They're all based on chemotherapies that have been developed 30 years ago, long before AIDS was known to, to kill human cells. Chemotherapy is restricted to a few months and hope the cancer dies before you die. If you started taking any other chemotherapeutic agent for the rest of your life, it would be that agent probably that killed you. You know, when you give chemotherapy to somebody with cancer, you give them a round of it for maybe 14 days or a few days. Hopefully, you're not going to kill the patient. You're going to kill the cancer. The patient's going to survive. But you don't keep giving it to him until he dies, because he certainly will. 
And I have to jump in here and say that I just watched an episode from the Florida Maquis today about how the CV could be a result of the Fukushima disaster and how low-dose radiation has been put in the population throughout the entire world, making us more susceptible to viruses like the CV. And I find that so interesting because with the HIV epidemic, what Dr. Duisberg and Dr. Mullis were suggesting was that it was the AIDS treatments that were killing these patients that were making them more susceptible to small viruses. And the AIDS treatments were low-dose chemotherapy. So it was uh, infusing the person, the patient, with low doses of radiation. And that has shown time and time again to make you more susceptible to bacteria and viruses of all kinds. Now they've done it to the whole world with the Fukushima disaster. It's a very interesting connection. So thanks for that episode, Maki. The way to get rid of AIDS is to stop funding it. Just stop every, everything that's called, called AIDS research. Somebody tries to get a, a, a grant for AIDS research, they we don't do it anymore. We don't have AIDS. If you want to look, study pneumocystis carinia, we'll maybe look at your paper and see if you've got you know, something to say about that. You want to study any one of those diseases by itself, try to cure it, we'll talk about that. The thing that I learned like back in 1968 when I first published a paper by myself in Nature in a field that I had no expertise in at all, uh, there are no old wise men up there at the top of science. Where, which I would have, I really did until 68, I would have thought, you know, if you try to publish a dumb paper in a journal like Nature, it won't get published. But if you try to publish a good paper in there, like I later tried to publish PCR, the invention of PCR in the same journal, and uh, they didn't take it. So it's up there, there isn't an up there there. There's no place up on the, there's, the Academy of Science is just a bunch of idiots, just like everybody else. You know, the editors of journals, austere journals even. They're just busy with their little lives and stuff. There are no old wise men up on the top making sure that we don't do something really dumb. And so you can see all of the th questions that Mullis had about the HIV equals AIDS equals death hypothesis are all the same questions that we'll call them dissenters are questioning now about the CV. It's almost like there were different targeted populations that were hit with the same thing where all these different modalities were tied to this one single retrovirus. So if you've noticed, we've talked about this over and over again, it is vastly people with several comorbidities who are highly affected by this retrovirus. And, and what that means is, is that all these people have all these different diseases. Diseases that existed before the CV. Their people were dying from these diseases before the CV. And now all of these diseases are being brought into the fold underneath the context of the CV. It's the same thing that they did with the HIV retrovirus. But in that circumstance, the targeted population was different. They really did think that this was going to pop into the mainstream all over the country and we were going to have to keep down this epidemic or find a, a cure. The epidemic that they just told everyone in America was going to happen here, it never happened here, but it did happen in Africa. Hmm, where PEPFAR was and where all this other medical insanity was going on. I hope that you're starting to see the similarities between what went on back then with HIV AIDS and with the CV now. And I'm telling you, we're just now getting started. The similarities are 
disturbing. But real quick, here is the clip that they cut out of the interview in all cases. He mentioned Fauci it passing earlier. He said, yeah, they'll get a grant from Anthony Fauci and da-da-da. But this is what he really thought about Anthony Fauci. And this is so important because Fauci is at the, at, he's the figurehead of all of this now because he also was the figurehead of the HIV thing. And Kerry Mullis hated him. What is it, what, what is it about humanity that, that, that it wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen, you know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope, and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy, and he doesn't understand medicine. He should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people, and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people who pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not, possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem. That's a main problem, actually, with science, I'd say, in this century, because science is being judged by people. Funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci? Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know, if Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it, because he's been asked. I mean, I've had a lot of people, president of the University of South Carolina, ask Fauci if he'd come down there and debate me on the stage in front of the student body because I wanted somebody who was from the other side to come down there and balance my because I felt like, well, these guys can listen to me, but I need to have somebody else down here that's going to tell me the other side. But Fauci didn't want to do it. Think about that. The, the antagonism between these two is not... Nothing. Dr. Kerry Mullis makes so many accusations about Fauci in that short clip that it's mind-blowing. Accusations that now that we've gone through this CV crisis, people that I know, people who watch my channel, we all know the accusations Kerry Mullis made about him being nothing but an administrative person who'd get up there and say anything and who will lie to us was absolutely true. We've caught Fauci in multiple lies. So many lies, he even just owns the one about masks. Yeah, I lied to you because I needed to save the masks. I couldn't just treat you like adults and say one per customer. So he's right about Fauci. And this is back in the 90s. I think the best place to go from here is the clip where he's asked about the PCR test in regards to HIV AIDS. And this is the clip that they're now attributing to the CV and why they say that the PCR test is misused for the CV. All right, so this is generally considered the clip that Kerry Mullis is talking about his PCR test and disease. I want to ask this to Kerry. How do they um, misuse PCR to estimate uh, all these so supposed free viral RNAs that may or may not be there? 
it's um, I think misused PCR is not quite. I don't think you can misuse PCR. No, the results, the interpretation of it. See, if you if you if you can say, if 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 they wanted, if if they could find this virus in you at all, and with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody. It starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can amplify one single molecule up to a to something that you can really measure which PCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. But the, the real misuse of it is, is that it, you don't need to test for HIV. You don't need to test for the other 10,000 retroviruses that are unnamed also in the subject. See, somebody that's got HIV generally is going to have almost anything that you can test for because they have definitely been, HIV is a fairly rare virus. There's only 1 million of us out of 250, 300 million people in America that have that virus. So you have to get around, either your mother had to have it and pass it to you, or you have to really be paying a lot of attention to people that do have it and paying only attention to them and get a pretty good chance of getting it that way. It's hard to get it. But it, if you have it, there's a good chance you've also got a lot of other ones. Because you've been in the in the market for you've been it's been possible for you to get a lot of it's it's, it's a, to test for that one and say that has any special meaning is what I think is the problem. Not that PCR has been misused. It's like it's not an estimation. No, it's a real it's a really quantitative thing. It tells you something about nature and about what's there, but it 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 allows you to take a very minuscule amount of anything and make it measurable and then talk about it in meetings and stuff like it is important. See, that, that that's not a misuse. That's just sort of a misinterpretation. Even after all the these uh, uh, PCR, this quantitative PCR, that if you just get down to a basic virological count, it's still one in a thousand to one in 10,000 uh, HIV in one to one in a thousand, one in five hundred to one in a thousand T cells. It, and it is. No, they, that, they, there's very little of what they call HIV, and what's been brought out here by Phil Pot and, and, and Isai already. It, the measurement for it is not is not exact at all. It's not. It's not as good as our measurement for things like apples. An apple is an apple. You know, you can get something that's kind of like if you got enough things that look kind of like an apple, and you stick them all together, you might think it's an apple. But and, and HIV is like that. Those tests are all based on things that are invisible, and they are the results are inferred in a sense. PCR is separate from that. It's just a process that's used to make a whole lot of something out of something. That's what also, it is. Um, and it's, they, but it's not. It doesn't tell you that you're sick, and it doesn't tell you that the thing you ended up with really was going to hurt you or anything like that. That's why it's not. So even if you believe in HIV, it can't tell the difference between virus particles or active live virus. I mean, there's a lot of questions. Involved. Mm -hmm. Guys, so Carrie Mullis didn't say that the PCR test couldn't find, say, a SARS-CV. What he said was when you then sit around a table and start saying that this thing is the cause of all of this, that's the problem. It's in the interpretation of what the test shows. All right, guys, so as hard as this really is, we're going to have to let this be episode one. The next episode, we're going to start covering his point of view on the future of medicine and how everything that he was working on for the 
25, 30 years leading up to his passing in 2019 is basically what we're now hearing is going to be the quote unquote future of medicine now. So we'll get into that next episode. In the meantime, guys, like, share, sub the channel. Love y'all. Peace.